to another episode of FinTech Recap, a monthly podcast where we, as you might have guessed from the name, recap the most interesting news and stories from the FinTech ecosystem. My name is Alex Johnson. I am a director of research at Cornerstone Advisors and the publisher of the FinTech Takes newsletter. Um, I am joined, as always, by my friend and fintech expert, Jason Mikula. I will let Jason introduce himself and our special guest. Thanks, Alex. Uh, this week, or this week, this month, I'm joining from uh, Denver, so actually spending some time in the U.S., which is a nice change of pace. Um, and as the audience probably knows, I'm a fintech consultant and publisher of the newsletter, Fintech Business Weekly. Uh, and I'm really happy to announce that this uh, episode, we're joined by Simon Taylor of 11FS. Uh, Simon, if you can tell us a bit about your role at 11FS, I think it changed a little bit recently. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm, I'm a co-founder of 11FS, but I'm also now chief product officer of 11FS Foundry, which is our reimagining of uh, the banking software stack. A lot of people are building faster horses, and we wanted to stand back and look at actually having built countless neobanks around the world, what is the stuff that we ended up building on top of core banking and around core banking to fix what was broken and, uh, and launch that. So that's that's my my obsession at the moment. And uh, yeah, aside from 11fs.com, where you can find out more about us, uh, you'll also find me regularly blogging at FinTech Brain Food. So good to be amongst people with the name FinTech in the name of their blog and newsletter. Uh, and thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. We are delighted to have you with us. And as you said, between the three of us, I think we have uh, more fintech content than you could possibly consume. So we appreciate you listening to this podcast and joining for this conversation. Um, so what we're going to do for the remainder of this podcast is really just kind of bounce around. We, we know there's way too much fintech and crypto and DeFi news to ever possibly do a comprehensive summary of everything over the course of a month. So instead of trying to be comprehensive, uh, Jason, Simon, and I just cherry-picked a few of our favorite stories uh, from the last month or so uh, in the fintech ecosystem. And what we'll do is take turns just kind of introducing uh, the topic or the question or the headline that fascinated us, giving a bit of an overview of it, and then sort of segueing into a discussion as a group to get everyone's thoughts on that particular topic. We'll do our best to move quickly and to get through as many topics as we can. But uh, again, if you're uh, listeners or readers of us in the past, you'll know that um, brevity is not always a strong suit for us. And so we will uh, we'll do our best to keep things moving. Um, I thought I would start by introducing a topic. I think a lot of what we're going to talk about is going to be uh, segueing into the crypto DeFi ecosystem, which is great, particularly given that we have Simon with us uh, this time around. But I wanted to start in sort of a TradFi corner of the world with the announcement last week from Capital One that they are going to be ending all overdraft and non-sufficient funds fees. Uh, the bank announced this last week. As part of the announcement, they indicated that they expect this will cost them around $150 million in revenue annually um, and that they will continue to offer uh, overdraft protection to a majority of their customers, but will just do it for free. And it sounds like reading between the lines, they expect a majority of their customers to continue to stay opted in to overdraft protection, especially now that it's free, but that uh, for customers that choose to opt out, they will simply decline transactions that are overbalanced. So 
I thought this story was fascinating. Obviously, I think the ball got rolling here a while back uh, with Ally and a number of other banks that either ended overdraft fees or took steps to limit uh, the impact of overdraft fees for customers. I guess the place I wanted to start with this, guys, and would love your thoughts, um, you know, Simon, maybe you can jump in here first, is I tweeted about this last week, and the commentary I had at the time was that this is one of the more tangible things you can point to in terms of the impact that neobanks have had on the market. Obviously, overdraft fees have been a topic uh amongst regulators and amongst consumer advocates for a long time. Certainly not a new problem uh, being discussed in the industry, but it seems like the actions being taken and a bank sort of proudly coming out and saying, we are going to surrender $150 million in revenue because we think it's the right thing to do, was certainly at least influenced by the rise of these fee-free neobanks. But, you know, Simon, maybe you can jump in. What were your thoughts when you saw this news? Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, if there's no competition on fee structures and business model, then does anybody have to change it? The problem with fees is they're an addictive business model. They're highly lucrative for a lot of these uh, organizations. And why would you voluntarily remove that? It takes somebody to come along with a different cost structure, maybe even a bit of a different business model, to kind of disrupt that and say, we are different, and here's how we're going to make our make an impact in the market. And so I agree with your, your fundamental point. Something interesting we saw in the UK market, uh, sort of vaguely after the similar, the similar thing had happened with the challenger banks here in the UK, was uh, the regulator actually stepped in, the Financial Conduct Authority, and said, there is a maximum amount of APR that uh, banks can now charge for overdraft fees. So they set a hard cap on, on what that could be, but they did it as a percentage. They didn't do it as an amount that a customer could go. And uh, it was kind of interesting that as a result, consumers went from a place of understanding that there was a monthly fee of $10, $20, or that they would be hit with this fee to this confusing percentage that suddenly was being applied retroactively. And so in a weird way, uh, sometimes the regulators stepping in can be a bad thing, and sometimes uh, the industry making its own move can be a good thing. But the fees always felt like kind of like a bad landlord, you know, like they're waiting for you to catch you out, to do something wrong to slip up to have that one transaction that comes out that you didn't see and boom there's the fee whereas this is kind of moving in a more consumer centric direction which is there are no fees but you can opt in you can opt out um let's see if that's followed up with marketing though because uh it's in the interests of cap one that most people don't take this up Right. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I think you make a really good point about the regulators, too, because the I think roughly the same time on the same day, almost, it seemed like the CFPB came out with some additional, I don't know, guidance, information, research, basically talking about the problem of overdraft fees and in particular sort of highlighting, as you just said, big banks' dependence on overdraft income and sort of how they've become somewhat addicted to it. So it did seem like that was the regulators sort of trying to nudge the market in the same direction that Capital One is now going. That said, to your point about sort of unintended consequences, it is going to be really interesting to see what the other big banks and, you know, smaller banks and community banks decide to do 
in response to this move. I mean, I, I gave, uh, I think Bank of America a pretty hard time a little while back when they introduced Balance Connect, which is a new feature they've introduced for their checking accounts that allows you to uh, automatically move money from one account to another in order to avoid an overdraft fee. But that service itself came with a fee. And so it sort of was uh, like the, the, the nesting dolls of fee structures, like you just can't get away from it in some of these cases. I, I do definitely agree there's going to be a bit of an adjustment period in terms of figuring out exactly what this means for the industry overall. Jason, what was your takeaway? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the phrase unintended consequences is uh, an apt one, right? Like if you think back to when some of these fees really started to escalate, uh, in part, it sort of stems to uh, the Durban Amendment, which limited interchange for banks with more than $10 billion in assets. And, and you know, the, the debit card revenue uh, was a key way that banks produced income from sort of middle-income consumers and supported the entire sort of structure of, uh, quote-unquote, free checking accounts in the U.S. And when that went away for larger banks, you saw this sort of bifurcation of most of their revenue coming from either you know, very wealthy, higher income customers who are using a variety of uh, products, you know, loans, investment products, and you know, from what we're talking about today, the sort of bottom uh, tier of consumers who are incurring overdraft fees, NSF fees, account maintenance fees. And so you still had, quote unquote, free uh, checking accounts across the spectrum, and that product was being supported by low-income consumers who are incurring, you know, disproportionately incurring these fees and upper-income consumers. Uh, so now you see, you know, the regulator and to some extent the competitive ecosystem with challenger banks um, pushing uh, establishment banks to either minimize or get rid of these fees, which I think on the surface is a good thing, right? I'm, I'm not saying that I, I agree with Simon, like the sort of nature of fee revenue is is addictive and it's punitive. It, it tends to punish consumers. Um, but I think you'll see that, you know, with these fees either lessening or going away, something is probably going to pop up to take its place, right? And uh, the CFPB report you mentioned, it was interesting the way that they defined the word dependent. And that was overdraft and NSF fees as a share of three classes of service fees, uh, account maintenance fees, ATM fees, and the overdraft fees. So to say a bank was, quote unquote, dependent on overdraft fees, what that actually meant as far as the nature of the study was the proportion of those three types of fees, uh, not the sort of proportion of operating revenue coming from uh, service fees in general, which for large banks is relatively low, between two and four percent. Um, so I think, you know, in general, like, is it a good thing that banks are sort of moving away from this? Yes. Are there likely to be unintended consequences in the form of, you know, other fees popping up that may or may not be distributed um, in a in a fair way? Entirely possible. And I think the last sort of caveat is. You know, consumers use overdraft as a form of short-term small-dollar credit, right? That's fundamentally what it is. And so as you reduce the amount of revenue banks make from it, 
sort of a natural law of economics that the availability of that is going to compress, right? Like if I'm Capital One or Bank of America and I'm I'm not making any money from this, that means I also can't tolerate any losses from consumers not paying it back. Ergo, my willingness to extend that overdraft is going to shrink. And you can argue whether or not that is a good or bad thing, but in all likelihood, the availability of overdraft is going to compress. And so consumers who are using overdraft as a type of short-term credit, you know, that, that demand for it does not go away just because the supply is constrained. Those, those users are likely to turn to other products, whether it's buy now, pay later, whether it's earned wage access, whether it's uh, sort of cash advance products like Dave or Money Lion, you know, the, the user demand for short-term small dollar credit doesn't go away just because the supply gets constrained. So I'm, I'm interested to see sort of how this plays out over the course of you know, 6, 12, 18 months and what the banks sort of do on the fee side and where consumers go to meet their needs for these sort of smaller, uh, smaller dollar credit products. Yeah, I think that's that's extremely well put, Jason. I mean, the the point about the demand being there fundamentally for short-term credit for consumers who have kind of a, a cash flow crunch is definitely really well taken. I mean, Cap One sort of indicated initially that you know most consumers that they have would be eligible for this free overdraft protection, but you could see that compressing over time, as you said, because there's really just no margin available for Cap One there, and. I think the problem in a lot of cases with overdraft is it just grew to be much bigger than satisfying that short-term cash flow need and ended up being something that consumers were accidentally using or were using too much. So trying to find a balance there will definitely be interesting. And as you were talking, I was definitely struck by the thought that, you know, ultimately in fintech and financial services, everything is the Durban Amendment. Everything comes back to it. Because to your point, the rise in overdraft coincided with a cut for you know, debit card revenue. And yet at the same time, that bifurcation between sub $10 billion banks and banks over $10 billion in assets is in a lot of ways what enabled the rise of neobanks and the existing model that they have that's dependent on debit card interchange. So really, really interesting. Uh, Everything, I guess, fits into an enigma wrapped in a puzzle with this topic. But um, Jason, I'm going to go ahead and hand the next topic over to you. What do you got for us? Uh, Speaking of uh, Durban Amendment and neobanks, so another big headline that caught a lot of uh, attention and discussion was N26's decision to exit the U.S. market. Now, I think some folks were caught by surprise on this. Others sort of had uh, hypothesized or thought it was a long time coming. Uh, but basically, for those who are, are not aware, N26, uh, German-based neobank, uh, had launched in the U.S., I think, in 2019, uh, had claimed upwards of 500,000 users in the U.S. market, although survey research uh, from, I think, Cornerstone put it at more like 100,000 users uh, and ultimately late last month decided to exit the U.S. market. I mean, I think the sort of question questions here are, you know, why did N26 fail in the U.S. and what kind of takeaways do we have from it, you know, for, for other banks or for the market uh, at large? You know, my sort of argument around why N26 failed to succeed is that it fundamentally, you know, lacked any kind of market segmentation or competitive differentiation, right? So it entered the U.S. at a point when Chime, Vero, Current uh, were already operating and had sort of a clear value proposition 
versus establishment banks that, you know, charged overdraft fees like we just discussed um, and had, you know, done a pretty good job of racking up a meaningful customer base. You know, in a sense, N26 was late to the party, you know, entered a market where these sort of neobank features, the two-day early direct deposit, no fees, uh, you know, fee-free overdraft were already well-established. And so really, you know, there was very little reason for a customer to switch from Chime uh, to N26 or from Chase, you know, to N26 when there were already sort of well-established neobanks serving these segments. Uh, But I'm definitely curious to hear Simon's perspective, uh, you know, particularly coming from sort of a UK context on, you know, what does the future hold for these sort of European imports? You know, N26 has exited. Monzo, you know, applied for a U.S. bank charter, but ultimately, you know, withdrew it. Revolut seems to be taking a slightly different approach. Um, you know, curious to hear Simon's thoughts on, on you know, why N26 left and, and what the future may hold for you know, Monzo and Revolut in, in the U.S. market. Thanks, Jason. It's interesting if you look at the history and the DNA of each of the three businesses you just name checked. Uh, N26 operated in a lot of uh, Western Europe where no other challenger banks did. And they were a digital only bank that executed the mass market play extremely well, but they were sort of one of one. Uh, for, for quite some time, there weren't really many copycats and the ones that were weren't particularly successful. So they they executed there. Copy-paste that into the US, as you say, and I think their timing wasn't great for it. Uh, I also think there was a little bit of like, uh, who's your early adopter crowd and what's your wedge product? And the early adopter crowd for a lot of the fintech companies, not just in the in the Dutch region and, and Western Europe, but also in the UK was fintech nerds. And somehow the idea that uh, European and UK-based neo-challenger banks could come to the US and do really well seemed to just really rub every fintech nerd in the US the wrong way. Because it's like, oh, we're so smart and you're not. And actually, I don't think that was the intent. Uh, If you look at the DNA of N26, maybe that's true. And maybe their ploy was to spend on above-the-line marketing. And compared to a Chime or a Varo, maybe they're not that different. But I actually think Revolut and Monzo are different beasts. Revolut always had a great wedge in that it was the best FX rate in the market. It was a great travel card. And if you can just go win at that, then you buy the opportunity to cross-sell into everything else. And that's what Revolut's done in its core markets and grown to 15 million plus users in the process of doing that. And they could potentially still execute that in the US and they are blitz scaling as, as a DNA. Monzo is something else. Like when people talk to you about Monzo, they don't tell you um, about getting paid early or they don't talk to you about the no fees. They talk about what it means to be a Monzo customer. They sort of created an affinity model to a brand new brand that didn't exist before, but it was mass market and it was millennial and it was the everyday spend card. And that's a wedge that I don't know if I've really seen executed in the US. Now, I would argue the timing for Monzo was bad because they just nicely got their charter in the UK. And that you know, getting a charter is hard, keeping it is harder. They were in the middle of a transition between CEOs. They had a lot going on on the home front. Um, they, they then had a down round. They had to get the, a lot of stuff in order. So I think they were distracted and it was a bad time for them versus 
Revolut, who keep telling you they want to get a charter and keep not getting a charter anyway, uh, but keep blitz scaling this sort of fintech super app strategy. It's almost like Revolut have lucked into being in a better position than actually having a charter because getting a charter is hard and keeping it's harder. So I think there's lots of lessons to learn uh, across the piece from from all of that. Um, Alex, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Sorry, I stuck on mute. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that one point you hit on there, Simon, that was a really one that resonated a lot with me is just that, you know, doing all of these things in parallel is really hard, right? And you get good at, um, you know, focusing on a core market or a specific web product that you're really building a lot of momentum around. And then it seems like, and maybe this is kind of a broader challenge with the ecosystem, there's just so much pressure to find the next thing. Like, what's the next market? What's the next customer segment? What's the next area that we're going to grow? And you're not given enough time to really see some of these value propositions all the way out. And so you end up with these situations where, yeah, as you're saying, you know, they're getting a, a charter in one region and then in the middle of that, trying to hang on to it and make sure regulators are happy. And at the same time, they're embarking on a whole new adventure to get a charter in another country that has completely different rules and requirements and different relationships that need to be built with regulators. And now we're starting this business over here. And oh, now we're bolting buy now, pay later on to this. And I think the capper to a lot of this is in addition to N26 announcing that they were pulling back from the U.S., and indeed, sort of really pulling back to focus on some of their core markets, uh, Simon, as you were saying, in Western Europe and some of these areas where they think they still have a lot of opportunity, that was actually accompanied by an announcement that they had raised, I think, another $900 million in capital. And so it seems like there's just so much money available to these companies. And the sort of corresponding pressure that comes with that money is you have to show us what your growth strategy is and what you're going to do. And I think in a lot of cases, the pressure to have a strategy uh, sort of overwhelmed the quality or sort of insights driving that strategy. And I think that's what we've seen with N26. I think to a degree, it's what we're seeing uh, with Monzo, at least in its uh, efforts to expand outside of the UK. Uh, Revolut, I agree, I think is trying something a little different. And I'm a, I'm a little bit more bullish that that might pay off. But um, I think long term, uh, it's going to be a challenge every time someone decides to do this. Yeah, and I think Monzo was the bank that almost didn't want to be a bank for a long time. Like they, their average deposit balance was um, three hundred pounds, so around four hundred dollars. And th with that, they weren't performing any lending whatsoever, and they had no cross sell, they had no subscription. It was like they had no revenue model to really show that momentum. And then you know maybe they can, but one thing that they always won at was the experience is just breathtakingly elegant and simple. And I was on a recent trip across the US and I would say, oh, hey, have you seen this thing Monzo does just in the context of a conversation? Um, and Starling does a lot of this stuff as well. But there's something about the execution of it where I really do think there are lessons from that product uh, that, that I think the world can, uh, the world can, can take. Uh, Jason, you had one, one more point. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the questions is, you know, are there economies to scale when you move into other geographies. And, and in the banking, you know, in some of these banking products, it's not necessarily immediately clear that that's the case. And I think that that's um, exacerbated by going the route of, of trying to pursue a full charter, right? So I think in a sense, you're right, like Revolut keeps talking about charters, um, but it's easier to scale this sort of uh, 
call it like capital light, regulatory light business model by operating through less regulated structures um, than it is, you know, securing a banking, you know, a banking license that's unique to each country that you operate in. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think if you look across the stack, you know, Revolut has taken a, a interesting and different approach that feels like maybe it should work better as they try to really aggressively scale around, uh, you know, around the globe in a way that, you know, an N26 or a Chime, um, you know, would, would, would or has struggled on, you know, executing into other geographies. Um, Simon, I think you had uh, our next headline for us. Yeah, so this is David Marcus is exiting Facebook or Meta or whatever you want to call it. So David Marcus uh, ran the Novi division of Facebook and prior to that was known as Facebook Pay. Um, so all of the payments initiatives for all of the group's activities around the world sort of rolled up to under him. Uh, he Prior to sort of running the payments business uh, from 2018, he was actually brought in to run Messenger from 2014. So 2014 to 2018, he runs Messenger. Prior to 2014, he was actually president briefly of PayPal. And prior to that, he built uh, an SMS-based payments business. So one could see the logic of uh, his position in Messenger and his attempt to build out payments inside of Messenger. And yet in that time, uh, in most markets around the world, Facebook or WhatsApp is is more or less nowhere with payments, right? I mean, they have 2 billion users. They sneeze and they will put some impressive data out there and some impressive numbers. Uh, but in markets like India, uh, they're not even in the top 10 payments apps compared to local telcos, local wallets, even the, the likes of Google and Amazon are much better positioned in payments in India. And you think about Southeast Asia, where Facebook's historically been strong, and even there, there is so much competition from so many different wallets and super apps coming out of China uh, that Facebook is just not actively positioned in it. And there was a story in the sort of late 2010s, sort of uh, 17, 18, 19, based on the growth of the, the WeChats and the, the Alipays, that that would be the future for big tech in the West, that we would see them not only have advertising as a revenue model, but payments as a revenue model. And it's not really happened. Uh, you know, Facebook has been announcing working with payments from 2010, 2011, and for whatever reason, it just it just can't get its act together. So there are other big tech companies in the West that have done this really, really well. I think Apple has executed on payments really interestingly. Uh, even Google's Google Pay is is there and thereabouts. Like they have a story to tell, even if it's not the most compelling, like a like a Chinese model. And we've also seen the rise of monster payment companies uh, that have filled some of the gaps left by the big tech companies that, that you might see in the more Chinese model. So I'm kind of curious, guys, to get your thoughts. Maybe, maybe Jason, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts on all things, you know, Facebook, Meta, its strategy as it thinks about payments on the global stage and specifically in the US market as well? Yeah, I mean, I think... You're absolutely right that this is something that, that logically varies, you know, by market. If I think of, you know, what are some of the reasons why Facebook, you know, hasn't been, you know, and is frankly probably not likely to be particularly successful with this in the U.S. market, 
the number one thing that comes to mind uh, is trust, right? And the likelihood that a typical consumer is going to trust, you know, payment credentials, stored balance, uh, you know, sending payments, whether P2P or to merchants, you know, within a Facebook, Instagram branded ecosystem. Uh, and of course, WhatsApp adoption and usage in, in the U.S. is much, much lower than it is elsewhere in the world. So, I mean, the number one piece that comes to mind is trust. Uh, and then the second piece is, you know, actually kind of echoing back to the N26 conversation, you know, is there something that Facebook is able to do uh, and offer from a value proposition perspective that, you know, users don't already have elsewhere with Cash App, with Venmo, um, you know, and then lastly, uh, of course, and perhaps the biggest one is uh, regulators and legislators, which you know have been uh, laser focused on big tech, you know, from both sides of the aisle, from Trump administration to Biden administration, uh, and increasingly sort of lined up against big tech, and, and not just Facebook. I mean, this extends to to Google um, and Apple as well. Uh, sort of opposed ideologically to allowing them to, you know, continue to sort of consolidate uh, power and functionality into their applications. And so, I mean, yeah, I think there's really a number of different reasons why Facebook has struggled. Uh, I mean, if you look particularly at the sort of Novi Diem stablecoin story, it started out incredibly ambitious, you know, multi-currency backed stablecoin and has progressively narrowed in scope. And that has primarily been because of the sort of regulatory pushback and scrutiny that it's gotten. Um, Alex, what are, what are your thoughts on uh, Facebook's sort of challenges in executing in the payment space? Yeah, I mean, just echoing what you just said, Jason, about um, Libra, Novi, Beefy, I mean, whatever they're calling it these days. I I think that the thing that strikes me about that is just the I don't know, almost admirable level of like confidence slash hubris slash unawareness that you'd have to have to map out a new sort of global payments platform and infrastructure that's going to be completely decentralized, but not really, but kind of, and then introduce it and expect absolutely no pushback. It was just shocking at the time. And ever since they tried to introduce it, as you said, they tried to scale it back. They tried to make it smaller. They tried to sort of reduce Facebook's role in it. But fundamentally, it was just never going to fly because of who they were. And I guess the fact that they didn't already know that and feel like that was going to be a challenge for them uh, is pretty surprising to me and maybe indicative of sort of a larger challenge they have introducing ambitious new products built on top of their existing reputation and trust with users and trust with regulators. So I think all of that was always going to be a challenge and is probably a big driver for why they changed their name and why they're trying to pivot in a more sort of substantial direction is to try to get away from that. I think the other thing, kind of going back to what Simon said, that is just interesting to me is, you know, super apps, meaning sort of these all-in ecosystems built by a big tech company sort of based on sort of a foundational platform that has a large number of users I just don't know that there's really any evidence that it ever is going to work in the U.S. And I know it has in other markets, and I know that is really attractive to a lot of these companies as a case study. But, I mean, using even Apple as an example, which I agree with Simon, I think Apple's done a wonderful job 
executing on a, a brilliant product for consumers around payments that's really well integrated into their ecosystem and all the way down into iOS and is really smooth. I don't think that it's necessarily been as successful as Apple would have predicted. It certainly wasn't as successful as we predicted at Cornerstone. We did all kinds of surveys before Apple Card was released. Um, and you know we never, ever heard any uh, thing except optimism from customers saying, yeah, I'd love to sign up for this card. I'd love to use Apple Pay. And their enthusiasm for it in consumer surveys in advance far outstripped their actual usage of it, even to date. And so I think there's just sort of this natural limit to the degree to which any company can really dominate any of these markets from a super app perspective, particularly around payments. So I don't know, that's that's kind of my perspective on where they fail. We'll see if they ever get their act together on uh, on payments. Um, Jason, we're almost out of time, but I know you had one last topic that uh, I think would be a fun one to end on. So why don't you introduce that? Yeah, I'm obsessed with everything having to do with El Salvador's uh, Bitcoin story. And the most recent piece of that was the uh, so-called volcano bonds, uh, where basically the president announced that the country is intending to raise one billion uh, U.S. dollars in Bitcoin bonds. Uh, so they basically sell a billion dollars uh, worth of bonds, use those proceeds to buy $500 million worth of Bitcoin, the other you know, 500 million to build infrastructure to uh, leverage geothermal power for Bitcoin mining. Uh, and this Bitcoin city, I think, would have like no income taxes, no property taxes, and no capital gains taxes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, one, just very interesting to see how different uh, nation states are sort of bifurcating on sort of regulatory approaches, right? So, recently you've had China and more recently India sort of moved towards outright bans of cryptocurrencies. And then at the opposite end of the spectrum, you have El Salvador, which is sort of doing a full on embrace. You know, I think that's another interesting strain of this story, which is part of uh, what I understand the crypto philosophy to be is sort of you know, decentralized and you know, not having anything to do with the government. But here you have a you know, borderline authoritarian ruler uh, sort of uh, mandating crypto ad adoption from the top down, which feels sort of antithetical to the crypto ethos. And then the, there's, of course, the question of like, is this even a good public policy uh, when you're turning uh, a country's balance sheet essentially into a, a leveraged long bet on Bitcoin? Um, I'm, I'm really curious to hear Simon's point of view, because I think sometimes we diverge on our, on our crypto thoughts and philosophies. Simon, any... Uh, um, a quick analysis on on what El Salvador is doing here, you know, why, what the impact is on the country, what the impact is in sort of the crypto ecosystem. Yeah, so I think there's actually two topics here, which is one, Bitcoin as sound money, and two, El Salvador. And those are like two distinct things, and we should almost talk about them separately. Um, so El Salvador trying to get away from the US dollar enforcing legal tender on its population uh, that may or not, may not yet have this software and may have very little understanding of the volatility is uh, an exercise not only in uh, geopolitical naughtiness and uh, attempting to evade sanctions and other such rules that, uh, that I, I share uh, a lot of concern about, but at the same time, it's irresponsible and deeply unfair to the population. So I have grave concerns about 
um, El Salvador and uh, its leadership and and how it's treating its financial system as a as a glorified experiment to which the economy is is a victim. So the, that aside, the idea of Bitcoin as sound money is is actually quite a bit more rational, and you can see that in the level of institutional interest. We have now a world in which we have six percent inflation. Uh, dollar printing that makes the Weimar Republic look um, sort of uh, small fry by comparison. And there's a really good uh, podcast I was listening to where the wealthy in the Weimar Republic of Germany in the 1920s, um, late late uh, 1910s, was sort of uh, deeply skeptical of all of the money printing that was happening. They saw their asset prices and their wealth increasing, but knew this was all going to come tumbling down and that uh, they the, they were trying to search for hard assets, things that would return, retain their value. And a lot of people are buying into real estate and property just to try and have something that's going to retain its value. So the idea of something that is a digital gold is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, the idea of something that is natively digital, natively 24-7, natively global is it not necessarily a bad thing? It's, it's in fact, deeply interesting. Um, both of those things can be true. We could have a potentially revolutionary new um, global reserve asset for the world uh, in time. Maybe we can get there. But at the same time, El Salvador could be doing things that are, frankly, unhelpful uh, to anybody that believes in the potential of crypto assets to be genuinely transformative for the economy. So um, that would be a perspective, but lots more to unpack with this one as, as the story rumbles on, I'm sure. Yeah, I think Simon said it well. Um, I, I think both those things can definitely be true. And um it certainly seems as though the president of El Salvador has nailed the, you know, crypto needs to be fun uh, angle of uh, how to market these things and how to talk to the crypto ecosystem about it. But I generally agree. I think that largely it's unhelpful to that broader goal, which I think we're still very early in seeing the, the potential results on. I also really appreciate Simon coining a term that I've never heard before on any podcast, but I'm glad it's on this podcast first, geopolitical naughtiness. And so with that, I think that is a perfect place to stop. Um, I want to thank Jason Nicola, as always, for uh, doing this podcast with me and our guest, Simon Taylor. Thank you guys both very much. This was awesome. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Have a good one.